Last Sunday, uh, many of us gathered here in this church, or maybe you were in a different church building, to celebrate Easter. It's the, it's the time of year, every year we set aside a Sunday to really focus in and celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Uh, and even in our culture, in, in, our, in the United States, we recognize Easter being a special day. Now, many people may not know the reason for Easter, and many may, but we all recognize that this is a holiday, it's a special day. But you know, one thing about an event is that an event has consequences to it. Usually when something happens, it's not just isolated to that time. For example, even if you throw a rock into a pond, the rock enters the pond, enters the water, and it creates ripples that go out. And even when the, pond, I mean, even when the rock sinks to the bottom of the pond, the ripples continue. There are consequences that go along with the action. And so is the same with Easter. And this, this morning we're going to be looking at, you know, what happened, what, what are the consequences of Easter? What are the results of Easter? You know, once Jesus was raised from the dead, then what? What, what consequences did that produce? What are the effects? What are the results? Because we know that through the death and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that a sinful people can receive forgiveness from a holy God. We know that that was accomplished through the death and resurrection of Christ. We know that through the resurrection, Christ gained victory over death, and that if anybody is in Christ, that they share in that victory. We know that's true. And we know what, what Christ did for us is foundational to who we are. It's what makes us Christian. We are followers of Christ. We are found in Christ. And it makes us who we are as the church. And you know, when, when Jesus was raised from the dead, when He died on the cross, He was raised from the dead, the earth quaked, but the earth didn't end. The world didn't end. And so you might ask the question, if Jesus conquered Satan and sin and death, why did the world just not end? And He bring in this new heavens, new earth, right then. Why did it not come to the end? Well, if you remember... Even last week, maybe you were worshiping in this church or another, you were perhaps reading the resurrection account in one of the Gospels. And as you read about Jesus rising from the dead, what, one thing you noticed is that the Gospel didn't end with the resurrection. For example, in the Gospel we're going to be looking at this morning in Matthew 28, we see that all throughout Matthew 28, throughout the first ten verses, we read about the resurrection. And then... The final ten verses, we read about what happened after the resurrection. The consequence of the resurrection. And so, there is a consequence of what Christ has done. And even we see throughout the New Testament, the consequences of the resurrection. What God, what His agenda is post-resurrection. What He's doing as a result of Christ being resurrected from the dead. And so if you want to turn with me to Matthew 28, we're going to read this text together. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you you can use. And as you're turning there, I want to give you a little context here. You've already picked up on most of it, but Jesus has been crucified on the cross. He has died. He has been buried. And then a few days later, on a Sunday, first day of the week, his followers go and they find an empty tomb. 
And then Jesus begins to appear to some of His followers and He tells them to meet Him on a mountain in Galilee. And that's where we're going to pick up the account in Matthew 28, verses 16 through 18. 16, actually we're going to go through verse 20. Matthew writes, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now we see in this short passage there are at least three consequences to the resurrection. We see three imperatives, three commands that that are laid out here in these verses. First of all, one consequence of the resurrection is that Jesus has been given all power and authority. The second consequence is that a mission has been given to the church, God's people, to carry out. And thirdly, we see that Christ has promised His His presence to His people. So let's look briefly here at the first three consequences And then we're going to look at a phrase in this passage that I think is going to give us some understanding about the mission of the church and what we as the church must be about in this day. So the first consequence is found in verses 16 through 18 when it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now the first consequence of the resurrection is that God the Father has given God the Son, Jesus Christ, all authority and power over all things. Now, we have seen, we have seen Christ's power demonstrated throughout the Gospels, through His earthly ministry. We have seen His power over, over nature. We've seen Him calm the winds. We've seen His power over sickness. We've seen His power over evil spirits. We've seen His power even over death. But now, what we're going to see is His power being exercised beyond just those things, but in all things. Christ is going to be exercising His power over all things. He is the sovereign Lord of all creation. One, one scholar said it like this. He said, it's not Jesus' authority per se that becomes more absolute. Rather, the spheres in which He now exercises absolute authority are enlarged to include all the heavens, all the earth. In other words, all of creation. Listen to how Paul describes this consequence in Ephesians 1, 20-23. He says that God raised Him, meaning Christ from the dead, and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. So Jesus Christ reigns over all things, all the time, even as we speak today. 
So the question is, you know, what, what is Jesus going to do with this authority that he has? What is he going to, to implement? How is he going to show it? Well, he manifests his authority by giving the church a mission. And this leads us to the second consequence found in verses 19 through 20. When he says to his followers, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is, this is the Great Commission. This is what has been called the Great Commission. This is the commission of the church. This is what we are to be about as God's people. And in this phrase, in verses 19 through 20, he gives us three commands, three imperatives. He says that we must make disciples, baptize disciples, and teach disciples. That is what we are to be about. And I want to briefly unpack these. And then I want to look at this phrase, make disciples to all nations or of all nations. Because we need to find out who are we to be making disciples of? Who are going to be these future disciples? What is God up to? What's his agenda post-resurrection? So first, let's look at these three commands. First, make disciples. What does it mean to make disciples? Well, one scholar described making disciples this way. He says, to disciple a person to Christ is to bring him into the relation of pupil to teacher. Taking his yoke of authoritative instruction, accepting what he says is true because he says it, and submitting to his requirements is right because he makes them. So basically... To make disciples means to see someone place their faith, place their trust in Jesus Christ. When they do that, they become a disciple of Christ, a follower of Christ. And the second command we have is related to that, in that we are to baptize disciples. Once someone has placed their faith in Jesus Christ and desires to follow him or him with, with his life or her life, then it says we need to baptize them. In other words, they need to make this public declaration that symbolizes what they did when they placed their faith in Christ. So they're going to outwardly profess, I am a follower of Christ. I am united to God's people. I am identifying with God's people. And I am identifying with Christ as my Lord and Savior. So we are to baptize a disciple. And next we are to teach disciples. You know, when someone places their faith in Christ, they identify themselves with God's people and with Christ as their Savior. We must continue to be lifelong learners of who Christ is and what He has said. And this is done primarily through the teaching of Scripture. This is, this is how we know what Christ has said. It's, it's written in the Bible. It's written in the Scripture from those followers of Christ. You know, one scholar said it like this. He said... The New Testament can scarcely conceive of a disciple who is not baptized or is not instructed. I mean, if you are a Christian, if you're a disciple of Christ, then you're going to want to be baptized and identify with Christ and His people, and you're going to want to continue knowing Him, getting to know Him better. You know, Paul said, what did he say in Philippians? I count all things as lost, in view of the surpassing value 
of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. This was his aim. And that's what it means to be a disciple, is to know Christ more and more. And as a church, as God's people, we are to be involved in that. And sharing God's Word with other people and with one another as we grow. And so for some of you, maybe you've never been baptized. And I want to encourage you, perhaps you need to be baptized even you know, next week or so. I'd love to talk with you about that. Let's, let's give you the opportunity to be baptized and, and declare publicly that I am a Christian and I want to identify with the church. Maybe you found yourself in a place of stagnation where you're just not seeing much growth take place in your life. You're not growing in your relationship with the Lord. And I want to encourage you to ask the Lord to give you a hunger for His Word. And then dive into the Scripture and read the Scripture trusting that He'll do that. Because apart from the Scripture, we cannot grow. We cannot know Christ and who He is and what He has taught apart from the Scripture. So that might mean for you to get plugged into a Sunday school class or a small group or to join us Wednesday night as we are walking through the attributes of God. You know, some way to put yourself in a position where you're hearing God's Word being taught, you're learning the Scripture, you're growing in your discipleship. So the first consequence is that Christ has been given all authority. The second consequence is that we are given this mission as the church to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them all that Christ has commanded. The third consequence of the resurrection is that Jesus promises that He will always be present with His people. You see it at the end in verse 20 when He says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so as Christ manifests and displays His power, He says, The church, I want you to make disciples of all the nations, and I'm going to be with you while you do that. I just returned from a two-night field trip with my son. We uh, went to Camp Rock Eagle over in Eatonton, Georgia. And so it was me, it was a few teachers, a few more chaperones, and about 48 fourth graders. And so they wore me out. They, you know, we, we started breakfast at 7.30, and then we had the, the, uh, the challenge of putting them to bed at 10.30 was their bedtime. And then we repeated it over again. And we had every minute planned, well, they had every minute planned for us. Which, you know, that's what you need to do with fourth graders. Every minute, no idle time. You don't need any idle time with this group. And uh, at one moment, we had like ten minutes of free time, and we didn't know what to do. We were trying to, trying to come up with a game on the spot to keep them you know, occupied so they don't just spread out all over this multi-acre camp. Well, I, I remember one of the nights, you know, you're getting all the, and you know, mandatory, we were in the, in the boys' cabin. All the boys had to shower. You know, I overheard one boy say, all you have to do is jump in and wet your hair, and they think you shout. <laughs> I, was thinking, I was thinking, no, no, we really need you to put soap on yourself. Please. And so uh, we're getting them ready for bed. We run them all through the showers, and then we get them in the bed. You know, that's, only, that's kind of step one to a 10-step process of bedtime, you know. And so we get them in there, lights out, and of course, you know, they keep talking and keep doing things. Well, one of the chaperones, Walt Chen, says, he knew the kids a lot better than I did. He's known them for a while. He's coached many of them. He knows their parents. And he says, 
If you don't be quiet, I'm going to call your parents. And they knew that he meant it because he knows their parents and he has a cell phone. You know, we're going to call your parents up and we're going to solve this situation. Well, that tended to work. And the reason it worked is because as the chaperones, we were not just simply adults that were present during this field trip, but that we were representing the parents and the school and the teachers. And so they knew if they were going to act up and we would just happen to share that information with the parents or the teachers, that there would be a price to pay. And so we had the authority the bestowed authority with us to carry out the role of a chaperone because of the parents' permission that they gave us that authority. What, what Christ is saying to a much greater degree is that I want you as the church to disciple the nations and I'm going to be with you in doing it. In other words, I'm giving you the authority and the ability to go to the nations and make disciples and the one who has all authority has promised to be with us as we do that. And that should give us some confidence as we go out, like Alex mentioned, as we go out into the world, whether it be down the street or overseas or wherever it may be, to represent Christ and introduce others to Christ. Now, I want to turn our attention to this phrase that I think really brings God's plan, this post-resurrection plan, into focus. He uses this phrase, he says, Go and make disciples of all nations. Now, who, who are the nations? Because whoever the nations are, these are the people that will become the church. These are the people who will become the disciples. These are the people who will be baptized. These are the people who will be instructed. So who are they? All nations. Who are the nations? Well, we must go back to Genesis to figure out God's agenda. Because God has always had the same plan in mind. He never had this plan A, plan B. It's been the same plan. Look back with me at Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. God is calling out a man by the name of Abram. And he makes this man a promise. And this is what he said. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God tells Abram, I'm going to bless you, Abram. And you, through you, will come the blessing to all the nations. So how are all these nations blessed? Well, it's because Abraham's seed, Jesus Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection has opened the door of blessing to everyone. And we see that this is what God has been doing all throughout history. This was, has been God's agenda from the beginning. Look at Psalm 22, 27, 28. Just listen to what the psalmist says about God's agenda. He says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, 
and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, to the Lord and He rules over the nations. Listen to Psalm 67, verses 1-5. through 5. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face shine upon us. You've all heard that scripture before, maybe as a blessing or a benediction. Why? Why do we want God's face to shine upon us and bless us? It says, That your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And we see this great commission, this agenda of God stretching itself throughout even the New Testament. You know, Paul writes this to the Romans. He says, in the very first chapter, in the first six verses, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Why? Why has Paul received grace and apostleship? Well, it says to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who were called to belong to Jesus. Now I want to jump to Romans 15, and I want to look at a peculiar saying of Paul here that I think will help us understand how we as the church are to be involved in making disciples of all the nations. In verses 15, or chapter 15, verses 18 through 21, this is what Paul writes. He says, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. By word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of Him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. I want you to notice how Paul describes his ministry in verse 19. Just listen to what he says. He says, So that from Jerusalem and all the way around Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Now what does he mean by that? Does he mean that, is Paul saying through his missionary journeys that he has been able to see the gospel proclaimed to every single person from Jerusalem to Rome? I don't think so. And I think we can confirm that by seeing these letters that he writes back to the churches and he encourages them to continue to reach those who don't know Christ. For example, he tells Timothy who is left in Ephesus as an elder there, as a pastor there, to do the work of an evangelist. There there are more people to be won to Christ. So I want you to do the work of an evangelist. Yet, Paul can say, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel. 
in this place. From Jerusalem to Rome. And so what does this mean? One scholar says it like this. He answers the question like this. He says it means that Paul's conception of the missionary task is not merely the winning of more and more people to Christ, which he could have done very efficiently in these familiar regions, but the reaching of more and more peoples or nations. His focus was not primarily on new geographic areas, rather he was gripped by the vision of unreached peoples. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, for example, if Paul was here in Augusta, he would be very active and intentional on setting up churches. But once churches were set up, he would leave and go somewhere else where there were no churches. In other words, he would not stay here in Augusta until every single person had heard the gospel and then move on. He would set up communities of faith, churches, that would fulfill that ministry, and he would move on to a new area and plant churches. And so the tension there is, okay, well, if we're to make this, as a local church, as the Hill Baptist Church, if we're to make disciples of all the nations, then are we to be involved just in the evangelism and the sharing of the gospel in everyone around this city? Or are we to be involved in helping and going to places that have no churches? You know, which is it? Well, I want to share an illustration that helps to kind of illustrate the tension that we can feel in that. You know, a hundred years ago today, something happened. April the 15th, 1912. This great ship, the Titanic, sank to the bottom of the ocean. On that ship, there were 2,223 people, of which 1,514 died. This great disaster. So on this anniversary of the sinking of that great ship, I want to use an illustration that deals with two similar type ships. And this illustration is used by a man named John Piper in a book, Let the Nations Be Glad. And it helps us to sense the tension there of what it means to make disciples of all the nations as the church. Here's what it, here's what it says. It says, suppose there are two ocean liners on the sea. And both begin to sink at the same time with large numbers of people on board who do not know how to swim. There are some lifeboats, but not enough. And suppose you are in charge of a team of ten rescuers in two lifeboats. You arrive on the scene of the first sinking ship and find yourself surrounded by hundreds of screaming people. Some going down before your eyes, some fighting over scraps of debris, Others ready to jump into the water from the sinking ship. Several hundred yards away, the very same thing is happening to the people on the other ship. Your heart breaks for the dying people. You long to save as many as you can, so you cry out to your two crews to give every ounce of energy they have. There are five rescuers in each boat, and they are working with all their might. They are saving many. There is lots of room in the rescue boats. And then someone cries out from the other ship and says, come over and help us. What do you do? 
You feel the tension? Do you, do you leave the ship that you're closest to? And do you send one of the rescue ships over to the other sinking ship? Because if you do that, think about it. Time is lost just getting over there to the ship. And that time could have been spent saving more people. And this, the first sinking ship. You know, think about the energy that's going to be expended as you go to this other place to try to rescue these people. You sense the tension. And you may feel that practically it makes sense just to stay at the first ship and save people. Practically. But as we seek to translate this illustration into the mission of the church, I think we're going to see something a little different. Piper says, he says, God may have in mind that the aim of the rescue operation should be to gather saved sinners from every people in the world. In other words, both ocean liners. Even if some of the rescuers must leave a fruitful reached people, the first ocean liner, in order to labor among a possibly less fruitful unreached people, the second ocean liner. In other words, when we think about missions, we need to be careful that we do not allow practicality to govern our strategy and our uh, use of resources and manpower, but rather we've got to let the Scripture govern our ministry strategy and our mission strategy. Because listen to what John says in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 5.9 it says, And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And Piper goes on to say, the, mission, the missionary vision behind this scene, speaking of this passage in Revelation, is that the task of the church is to gather the ransomed from all peoples, languages, tribes, and nations. All peoples must be reached because God has appointed people to believe the gospel whom He has ransomed through the death of His Son. The design of the atonement prescribes the design the design of the mission strategy. So we see in John, as he writes in Revelation, that when Christ comes back and sets up His kingdom, people from every people group will be represented there. And therefore, as the church, from Matthew 28 through Revelation, we see our mission is to be involved in the taking of the gospel to every nation, every people on the planet. We must be globally minded as a church because God is globally minded. God is in the process of unfolding His redemptive plan all over the globe. And this church, this church has a history of being globally minded. This church has a history of of praying for, resourcing, and sending missionaries all over the world. And for us to continue to be the church that God wants us to be and the people that God wants us to be, we must not shrink back from God's post-resurrection agenda. You know, Christ gave His commission to these early followers of His and yet it extends to us even today. And we have the same promise that Christ gave them 
And that as we seek to be involved in the globalization of the gospel, gospel going all over the world, that Christ will be with us just as He was with His disciples. All authority is still His. All power is still His. And so we can have confidence as we go forward to try to take the gospel to people who have not heard. Now the question we need to ask ourselves is how are you and how am I involved with global missions? You know, perhaps your next step is to begin praying for an unreached people group. You know, there are great resources that you can gather to help you along with this. Operation World is one. The, the International Mission Board has a website that tells you all about the unreached peoples of the world. Maybe for you the next step and to get on board with God's agenda for the world is to begin to pray for an unreached people group. Or perhaps your next step is to go on a short-term mission trip overseas. Or maybe, maybe your next step is to give in order for this unreached people group to be reached with the gospel. Or maybe your next step is to, to, to come alongside the church here, the Hill Baptist Church, and help us to figure out how can we as a church be more intentional, more strategic in how we're involved in fulfilling the Great Commission. Or maybe the next step for you all is to give the next year or years of your life to reach an unreached people. You know, over the next several weeks and months, we as a church, we need to be wrestling with how do we become more of a Christ-centered church, Christ-centered people, a community-oriented people, a city-focused people, and a globally-minded people. And like I said, there's a rich history there, and now is not the time to shrink back from it. God's desire for the church is to be involved in the making of disciples of all the nations, here in Augusta and everywhere in the world. And we as a church, you as a Christian, need to consider, what is my part in this? How will God use me in fulfilling His plan for the world? Now as we close our service, as we sing our final hymn, our closing hymn this morning, perhaps... The next step for you is to come into God's family, be a part of God's mission, and that means coming to know Christ personally. And if, you've not know, if you do not know Christ personally, I'd love to share with you how you can place your faith in Him. Maybe you're looking for a church to come alongside and be a part of, identify with, as we together are on mission for the glory of God. I'd love to invite you to join this church here. But as we sing this final hymn, I want you to consider how does God want to use you in fulfilling the Great Commission? Let us stand and sing our closing hymn.